For much of her life, Amanda Lemond didn't have much to hold on to that made a connection with her mother. The only thing that she had was a, a little bunny toy that her mother gave her one Easter when she was a little girl. Hammond said, I, I wouldn't give her up for anything in this world. Lemon's mother, Barbara, died of bone cancer 23 years ago in Washington state. After my mom passed away, I was shipped around all over the country, Lemon said, from Washington state, to Texas, to Louisiana, to Texas, back to Washington, back to Texas, in and out of foster care. Without her mother, Amanda Lemon felt lost until the right words found her. They are messages of love and hope and inspiration, Lemon said, holding one handwritten letter from her mother. A little bit of advice, some boy advice, she added with a smile. One Saturday, Lemon received a package in the mail from the executor of her mother's estate. The executor who lives in California recently moved and came across some boxes belonging to Lemon's mother. And inside were letters, photos and mementos from Lemon's childhood, even her original birth certificate. These are glimpses into my past that I have sorely longed for over two decades now, Lemon said. They showed up in the mail and kind of made my day. Lemon never knew that the letters existed. One was written just a month before Lemon's mother passed away, and this is what it said. Dear Amanda, you know I really miss you, and not being able to get up with you every day is torture. Well, honey, try to keep smiling and be brave. Lemon said, this is a connection to her that I thought I'd never have ever again. I wonder when was the last time you ever received an encouraging letter or an encouraging note. They're amazing. They're amazing because sometimes they give us that boost and affirmation and just enable us to keep on going, particularly from people that we love. But it's a two-way traffic in that not only do they bless us, but somehow they forge a stronger connection between the person who writes and the person who receives. Well, this is the kind of letter we're going to look at in the next few Sundays as we explore the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Let me give you a little bit of context in terms of this. The Apostle Paul was finding himself in a situation where he was virtually on house arrest, very possibly in Rome. And yet he writes to encourage a church that he formed nearly nine, ten years before when he went to Philippi. And you need to read Acts chapter 16. Uh, and I'm just going to give a little bit of a flashback to flesh it out, but it would really help. And I know you're going to do this in your connect groups. It would really help just to read Acts 16. In an amazing way, Paul is being redirected by the Holy Spirit to go to Philippi. It wasn't his destination, his planned destination. And he ends up in Philippi, and really it's a pagan city, uh, very much a strong Roman colony, uh, actually a retirement place for some of the high-ranking military figures in the Roman Empire. And there was no synagogue and no place for him to directly connect to people 
who would have had an understanding of the Jewish faith. So he ends up connecting with a lady called Lydia and a whole bunch of other ladies around her. It's almost like a group that, that she had around her and she becomes crucial. As well, he casts out a demon out of a girl who was fortune telling and out of that big trouble ends up <laughs> upon uh, Paul and Silas and they end up being thrown in prison because of it and beaten up. And while they're in prison, an earthquake happens and again even in the midst of that situation they end up leading one of the Philippian jailers to Jesus and this is the church that was formed out of these unlikely candidates in the midst of a very pagan city and ten years down the line Paul is writing himself out of a situation of house arrest to encourage them he writes to them to thank them because they've been financially and prayerfully supportive of him and a, a representative from the church called Epaphroditus had come and brought the gift and he's saying to them look he's okay and he's wanting to reassure them but actually the letter is more than just a polite way of saying thank you and a way in which somebody that is on mission would thank their supporters about what they've received the letter addresses much bigger issues very often it's known as the letter where joy features prominently. You and I would have this question, particularly in times like this, where joy doesn't come naturally. And if we look at our environment, nothing says we should be joyful. So you want to ask the question, where can I get true joy? And Paul will give us an answer. Maybe if you're asking yourself the question, if I'm going through a difficult time, and I think probably we can all relate to that, how can I go through those difficult times? What do I do when I'm facing opposition? What do I do when things are tough? Or maybe you're asking the question, how can I find a sense of meaning in life? Paul, in this letter, gives an answer to some of these questions. And maybe, and what we're going to look at a little bit this morning, how can I forge good relationships and good partnerships with people? And again, the whole letter gives us a wonderful framework of great relational strengths between people. So we find ourselves right at the beginning of the letter and we're just going to camp in the first two verses of chapter one and we're going to pick up a couple of issues of interest to us. Philippians 1 verses 1 to 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people, in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of verses, a couple of lines at the beginning of a letter that are so easy to overlook and you'll be thinking to yourself, well, it just sounds like a, one of those uh, dear madams and sirs or... Um, an introduction that seems to be customary, but if you peel back the layers and put the magnifying glass on these words that Paul is writing, there's something very profound about it. And the first thing that really strikes me is that first sentence in there, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Why don't we say it together? Because it's so short. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. In one sentence, 
there are some incredibly profound lessons in leadership. And boy, do we need some lessons in leadership. If we look at a challenge that leaders across the world are facing as they are trying to deal with a global pandemic, as we're seeing the crisis, the political crisis in the United States, we need good lessons in leadership. And what I love right from the very beginning is that when Paul talks about, inadvertently, about leadership, he talks about teamwork. So he writes alongside with Timothy. Timothy would have been a mentee that Paul has invested a lot and really developed as a young Christian leader who ends up being a wonderful young pastor. Paul in all his life has this network of friends and partners in the gospel, as he calls them, that he works with. It's never about Paul the superstar, Paul the super pastor, Paul the super missionary, Paul the super church planter, Paul the super theologian. It's always Paul along somebody else, whether it be Silas or Barnabas or Epaphroditus or Timothy or Titus and a whole host of other people that Paul is connected with. You read the, the, the last chapter in Romans and you, you find that Paul is writing right at the very end and addresses personally by name so many people, which tells you all you need to do to know about Paul's leadership. Paul believes in team. And it's so important to see that, that partnership versus a one-man show. And then when Paul describes himself or reminds the, those who knew him from Philippi and those who never met him, so he introduces himself, he calls both himself and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. Servants. In fact, really, Paul is modeling something that should be essential for Christian leadership. There's no such thing as Christian leadership without servant leadership. By definition, Christian leadership, New Testament leadership, is servant leadership. The one characteristic that defines Christian leadership is that of servanthood. And surely this is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus himself said, I have come to serve, not to be served. And it's shown that in the wonderful picture when he washed the disciples' feet. Paul follows in the footsteps of Jesus and his leadership is one defined by servanthood and he's reminding the church at Philippi. He's reminded that he's part of a team and he's working alongside a younger guy. He mentions him, he honors him by that, and he identifies himself as a servant. He could have obviously mentioned all the different qualifications, titles and achievements that he would have had, both as a theologian and as a church planter. A long list of here is me and this is my CV. He doesn't do that. He simply defines himself by being a servant. And then it beautifully is putting Jesus right at the very heart of what qualifies them as leaders. And he says, servants of Jesus Christ, servants of Christ Jesus. This is his identity. Everything that Paul has is centered around Jesus foundational that Jesus is right at the very center of everything that he does, everything he believes, everything he's passionate about. You cannot escape this sense that they are unashamed ambassadors of Jesus. They, they're not talking about their ministry. They're not talking about their dreams and visions. They're not talking about their plans. They are all about 
Jesus. And that's a beautiful picture that you see here. And actually what qualifies him is the fact that Jesus called him. He had that wonderful encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road and Jesus calls him. So actually the identity that Paul and Timothy have is one that's imparted to them. It's not one that's achieved. And they're basically those whom Jesus had met, chosen and called to serve him and bless other people. That is such a beautiful thing. And then later on, when, when he greets the church, he specifically mentions at the end of verse 1 uh, that he writes to all God's people together with the overseers and deacons. And this time, once again, I love the fact that Paul is honoring those local church leaders and he mentions them specifically. And he mentions overseers and deacons as two different roles. It's almost like in our church, we have a spiritual leadership team and an administrative leadership team. They both have a very significant spiritual role to play, but they have different strengths and different areas of passion and interest and involvement. And he mentions them because once again, he wants to see that in church, it's important to have leaders, but those leaders, are not like the leaders of the world. They are not proud, they're not arrogant, they're not controlling, they are not about themselves. They are not building their own little kingdoms, but they are people who are servants of Christ Jesus, working in a team together. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And they are a team full of people who complement each other. Some have got spiritual passion, some are brilliant administratively, and you need both to have a church function well. Right at the very beginning of this letter, Paul is bringing some wonderful lessons in leadership. But then he extends the circle and he talks to the whole congregation. And it, it, it's amazing that he sets the scene about introducing themselves as leaders and then he talks to the rest of the congregation. You might say, what's the big deal, Christy, about this? This is a huge deal. We have so many leaders, movers and shakers and influencers in our world who are sick to the bone with narcissism. It's all about them. It's all about their image. It's all about their achievements. It's all about their ego. And then again, just emerging stories, even in the church circles of people who are suffering. Narcissism is one of the sicknesses of the leadership world in today's world, but also controlling abuse. Just people who use other leaders, who use other people as pawns that they can control and use for their own means. So many leaders are all about building their own brand. And I think getting the wonderful beginning of this letter, we get a heart of what good Christian leadership is about. What we need to be vigilant as leaders, and I'm talking to leaders now, and also what you need to continually pray for your leaders for, be it people at a national level, people at a local level, people in your workplace, or leaders in the church. It's so important to see those wonderful dynamics that Paul is bringing to the believers in Philippi. I never knew this, but Pope Francis gave a TED talk. And by the way, this is not an endorsement 
of any theological viewpoint that Pope Francis might have, I think we will differ on a lot of issues. But I find his perspective on leadership in this particular comment that he made in the TED talk that he gave very, very useful. Let me read it to you. This is what he says. The more powerful you are, the more your actions will have an impact on people. The more responsible you are, you must act humbly. If you don't, your power will ruin you and you will ruin other people. There is a saying in Argentina, he's going back to his roots, power is like drinking gin on an empty stomach. You feel dizzy, you get drunk, you lose your balance and you will end up hurting yourself and those around you. If you don't connect your power with humility and tenderness through Christ-like humility and concrete love, on the other hand, power, the highest, the strongest one, becomes a service, a force for good. A wonderful rem reminder that echoes Paul's sentiments about leadership. It's all about being Christ-like and walking in his footsteps. It's all about being part of a team. It's all about being humble. It's all about finding your identity in being servants. It's all about being a part of a team that is full of people who complement each other. And then the circle extends and Paul continues. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's extending his greeting after he's introduced himself and reminded people who he was. He's extended his his greeting to the whole of the church. And this is Paul loving local church. So the first thing that we saw in there is lessons in leadership. The second thing that we see here is an incredible love for the local church. Paul loves the local church. He's saying to all of God's holy people, all of them, Paul is inclusive. And this is what church is about, as Paul is bringing it to us. It's about all. It's not about cliques. It's not about certain parts. It's not about those who believe in this political idea and those who are passionate about that style of music and those who wear this type of clothes. It's all. Church is inclusive, not a group made out of exclusive cliques. He's writing to all but he's writing to God's people. The church for Paul is God's people. That's a powerful reminder. And in another context, when Paul writes about the church, he calls the church the bride of Jesus. Jesus being the bridegroom. Church being the bride. So very often it's easy to get disenchanted with church. When Paul sees the church, He's not disenchanted. And let me tell you, these churches were just like us, imperfect, full of mistakes and challenges and difficulties. And yet Paul calls them God's people. That's because Paul had a love for those people recognizing that God loves them. They are his. Strong challenge that I'm always reminded of. Never ever speak badly about the bride of Jesus. 
this pride. You will never ever find a, a, a husband that you can talk to slagging off his wife that he's going to applaud you and say, yeah, I love you talking about my wife like that. He will be incredibly offended and hurt. And maybe even more than that. Well, these are God's people. They belong to him. And when Paul describes them, he goes a little bit further and he calls them God's holy people. The word holy means set apart. In other words, these are people who once used to be like the world, living in sin and selfishness. And because they've had a transforming encounter with Jesus, they have been changed. And right now, they're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And they are holy. These people are not perfect. They've got issues. But when Paul addresses it, he calls them holy. And repeatedly he does that through some of the other letters that he writes to some of the other churches. Why? Because he sees them through the new identity that they have in Christ. Is it because they're perfect? No. It's because they're in Christ. And sometimes we can get really disappointed with ourselves and think, look, look at ourselves individually. Maybe even look at ourselves as a church and think, well, we're not, we're not doing great. Let's remember that in Christ, not because we're good and we're great, but because we are in Christ, we are seen as holy people, set apart for God, who are marked and distinctive and shine with the beauty of the righteousness that we have in Christ. God's holy people, all of them. In Philippi, so when Paul is writing and, and loving the local church, He's saying, yeah, I recognize that you're all together. There's no exclusive cliques. I recognize that you are God's people. I also recognize that you are God's holy people. You're in Philippi. What does that mean? It means that every single local church ought to be incarnational in the place, geographically, socially, economically, intellectually, spiritually, where God has chosen to put them. Every local church ought to be individually unique, reflecting the call and the presence of Jesus specific to that local community. They are the church in Philippi, and there's no other church like the church in Philippi, and they are incarnational. They've made that place their home. Yes, it's a pagan place. Yes, it's a place that doesn't have any Jewish heritage that would have been a great advantage to somebody like Paul when he preached the gospel. Yes, it's a place full of people that probably were very well off. It's the place where Jesus' people are at. And again, it's so important to realize that that's what it means to be local church. That's why every church ought to be unique and not become a cheap echo of another church in another continent. We ought to be uniquely incarnational to our local community, just like the church at Philippi was. And then he mentions, as I said earlier on, the overseers and the deacons. He greets the, the leaders in the church and he affirms that. And once again, that's a mark of a great local church. A great local church would be led by great local leaders, both spiritual and administrative leaders. And Paul acknowledges that. Sometimes there is a tendency to say, well, you know, we don't need any leaders. We're just ad hoc. Paul is saying, no, a good, healthy, 
local church, like the church in Philippi, has good leaders that know their place, they serve, complementing one another, but it's important to realize them. And he wishes them God's blessing by just encouraging to receive the grace and the peace that Jesus and the Father could give them. You know, the gifts that he wants for the church and the blessing that he wants from the, for the church are not the things that the church can achieve or somebody could give them with human resources. Grace and peace are not about human resources. They're about divine resources. And Paul is saying, this is what I want to see being poured out upon you. And what a wonderful thing, because if we have the grace of God, that's a powerful community where we can confess our sin in safety and we can see transformation that the love of God brings. That's a place where people become Christians because they encounter the grace of Jesus. That's a place where people are transformed and set free because they encounter the grace of Jesus. And the peace of God is phenomenal because it's that place in our souls and our minds where even though there's a huge storm happening around us, we have the peace of Christ that Paul says surpasses understanding. Those are the things that Paul wishes upon that beautiful but very normal and human local church. I want to encourage you as we launch into exploring this letter and maybe I want to speak to the leaders a little bit because Paul presented a model of leadership and then he praised the leaders in the church at Philippi and just want to encourage the leaders at CFM will you check your hearts at the beginning of this year would you watch against either apathy or arrogance I think those two are always great temptations for us. We can become apathetic and we've been serving for a while and we've grown weary. Just ask the Holy Spirit to pour out a great, fresh passion, making you realize that Jesus has called you to serve. And then maybe if there's a temptation, I don't know if there is, but if there's a temptation for arrogance, you say, Lord, just give me a Christ-like servant spirit. I don't make this about myself, but I'm always about Jesus. A Jesus-centered passion and servant-hearted attitude. And then for us all as a church, CFM, let's pray that God would make us fall in love with one another as the church, realizing as we look at one another that we are the bride. May we fall in love afresh with our people, who we are here, not somewhere else, but here, who we are, imperfect as we are, looking at one another in the eye and saying, you are God's holy people. Yes, you are God's holy people. Just ask the Holy Spirit to fill your hearts with a fresher love for the church, for the local church. And, and receive that love for yourself. Maybe you've never thought of yourself in the last few weeks and months as being one of God's holy people. Well, you are. You are, believe it. Don't feel disheartened. Don't feel discouraged. Don't feel you don't measure up. Don't feel that you're not like so-and-so. Yes, we want people to be passionate for God. But sometimes we go through seasons in life where it's tough and we, we grow weary and we get discouraged. Just receive his love in the season. Hear him speak over you. You are my holy people. Take that to heart. You are special. Because you are his, not because of what you do, not because of what you say, not because of how you perform, but because you are his. 
and he loves you to bits. Learn to love where you live. That was the church in Philippi. Learn to love where you live. Learn to remember and maybe evaluate at the beginning of this year. Lord, why have you sent me here? Why, why do I live where I live? Why do I work where I work? Why am I mixing with people in my, in, in my hobbies and interests that I do? Because it's not accidental. And learn to love it. Sometimes it's so easy to have this escapist ideas that the grass is greener on the other side and we just miss what's in front of us. You know, I'm all, I, I listen to a lot of people across the globe, great, great leaders, and I look at what other churches are doing. But really the most important thing for me is what is God saying to, to us here on these streets, in these houses, in this neighborhood, in this region? Learn to love where you live. Certainly with, with the lockdowns and the inability to travel around, a lot of people have started exploring their, 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 their local area. And for us, we're so blessed. We live in a rural, semi-rural area and there are just so many wonderful walks and wonderful paths and wonderful hills and great lakes and wonderful things to see all around us. And suddenly we're thinking, this is beautiful. And it's on our doorstep and we've never realized. It's the same spiritually. There's so many opportunities that God is giving us. And it's so easy to miss them out. Let's not miss them out. Pray, serve, share where you live. It's a wonderful open door that God gives to you. Earl Palmer is a very well-known author and he passed at a certain point in his life and once countered the critics that were railing against the church for being hypocritical and scandalous and often irrelevant in the culture. And this is what he said. When California's Milpitas High School Orchestra attempts Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the result is truly appalling. I wouldn't be surprised if the performance made old Ludwig roll over in his grave despite his deafness. You might ask, why bother? Why inflict on those poor kids the terrible burden of trying to render what the immortal Beethoven had in mind? Not even the great Chicago Symphony Orchestra can attain that perfection. But here is my answer, Earl Palmer is saying. The Milpitas High School Orchestra will give some people in that audience and this will be their only encounter with Beethoven. They will give them Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Far from perfection. It is nevertheless the only way they will ever hear Beethoven's message. Palmer is pointing out that the only way a starving, thirsty, deluded and suffering world will ever hear the music of the gospel is through the church, the imperfect church, the body of Christ. Arguably, like the worst school orchestra, high school orchestra in the world ever to appear on a bandstand. If performance standards are really the most important measure, the church is really in trouble. But God is determined, Palmer is saying, to trade the perfection of his solo performance 
for the possibility of playing a little improvisational jazz with us, the screechy saxophone players in the Kingdom of God's ragtag big band. What a reminder of grace. And me and you get to be part of this wonderful work that God is doing first and foremost in us and then as an overflow through us. May the Lord strengthen you in this year as you walk with Jesus. May the Lord inspire you and keep you humble if you're a leader. May the Lord build greater connections and greater buy-in into the local church if you're part of CFM. And may our experience be one where we are strengthened, envisioned and fruitful in sharing the great good news of Jesus. Amen.